0: Okay, so week eight, as I mentioned, Israel and the Old Testament. We're going to finish the Pentateuch today, which is a, um, a big... we have kind of gotten the first section of the Old Testament done after this. Um, come a long way. We are, um, we're losing some of the characters in our story that have been um, present for a while, and we're going to be meeting some new ones that God has raised up in Israel. And we ended last week with Israel's response to the bad report brought by the spies in the land. Israel did not get to enter the promised land. And we talked about uh, various judgments that were made against them and that they were punished and would be forced to wander in the desert and wait until most of that generation had passed away. And close to the end, we also saw, sort of for the first time, we see um, Israel becoming involved in a couple of... um, conflicts with local people, military conflicts. They ask for safe passage. It's not given to them. Um, and remember, we talked about how numerous Israel is and um, these, these conflicts and God's still protecting them. These, these conflicts that they go through um, with local people begin to sort of... Sp- um, the word about the Israelites begin to spread in the region. That's where we pick it up today. Um, We are in Numbers 22, and I'm going to read for you the first six verses. And you'll see why uh, we just couldn't quite squeeze Balaam into last week. So we're in Numbers 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, the hoard, "This horde will now lick us all. Lick us all that is. Excuse me. <clears throat> this horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field." So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers, messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So again, Israel, numerous nation, as God promised He would make them, and they've had a couple of military successes, and the local people are afraid of them. And this is our introduction to a, a very unique character in the Old Testament. Um, this is the prophet Balaam. So this king, his son, is reaching out to Balaam, and he wants help, he wants them to come and curse the Israelites. And they send out emissaries to Balaam. And I think it's interesting the way Balaam is kind of handled here. First of all, we know that, we know that there's some power at work here. Why? Well, because of the way the king, because of the way it is, is spoken of him. I know, that he, uh, I know that he who you bless is blessed and he who you curse is cursed. So this was their answer to the problem of Israel. All right, but that implies that Balaam has some sort of a, um, a history here. That there's some precedent for his um, being used in such a way or being summoned in such a way. So there's um, th- there is something about Balaam that makes him um, fit to fill this role. And, and we see, and when s- we see that they send for him, they send for him with great honor. Um, The elders that go to him, they present the the request, and Balaam, kind of interesting, he asked them to stay the night so that he may speak to the Lord, and God does speak to Balaam. Again, this is very interesting. I mean, uh, one of my first questions I had for you guys, what conclusions can we draw about Balaam when we consider the honor that he's shown by the Moabite princes and his communication from God? Again... We're told that God does speak to Balaam. Most of the time, most of our story so far, when God speaks to someone, He's speaking to an Israelite. So this is sort of unique. It's interesting that God chooses to talk to this prophet. What concludes what, you know what, what do we think about Balaam from this?: Yes. Yes. Apparently there was some real prophetic power by some source. Um, I think I think that's I think that's an excellent point. What else What else can we discern about Balaam from the way he's introduced in this text? Think like Melchizedek. Melchizedek, someone who you know has a unique yeah. Um, he does he does sort of appear. I think um, I think. When I read through this, I also think it's, it's a unique picture of God's purpose because God is going to use Balaam in an interesting way. Balaam, as Jeremy talked about last week in the sermon, is actually going to prophesy about Israel's future. Well, that's interesting. Now we have a non-Israelite prophesying about the future of Israel. Certainly, God has a unique purpose for Balaam and has brought him to this point um, so, God speaks to Balaam. He tells them that he tells Balaam that the Israelites are blessed. Says Balaam may not curse them. Balaam returns this answer to his visitors, and they leave. But it's a great problem for um, the king and for the princes of this region. They send more people to come back and ask Balaam again, and says and it says this time. They, they send, they send um, more numerous people and people that are of greater um, prestige, you might say. So they're, they're really rolling out the red carpet for, for um, Balaam here. this please, come and help us with this. Balaam again asks them to stay the night. God um, this time tells Balaam to go with the men, but to do only what God instructs. So again, we see God's purpose. The first time God says, no, you may not curse them. The second time says, go, go with them, but do only what I tell you. And here we uh, find ourselves moving on to a very, very interesting story um, just about the way God uh, manifests himself before Balaam. So Balaam gets up, he has two servants with him, saddles his donkey and he leaves And as he's on the road, we in Numbers 22, the angel of the Lord appears in the road ahead of Balaam with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam can't see him. It's the angel of the Lord here with a sword. So the donkey can see and turns off to the side. Balaam is angry, he strikes, strikes the donkey to get her back in the road it happens again. The angel of the Lord appears on the road ahead. Balaam can't see. The donkey sees the danger. This time she crushes his foot against a wall trying to get around this angel that the donkey can see that Balaam cannot see. And a final time the angel appears but this time takes a position at a narrow point in the road so that there's no way to go around. Okay? So what happens? The donkey being unable to avoid this danger lays down under Balaam. Balaam is furious and beats her with his staff. Now, animals have sort of a unique ability to vex us at times. Anyone who's ever tried to potty train a puppy can attest to that. They have a unique ability on occasion to get under our skin. And, um, you know, in a moment of frustration, most of us have probably spoken to an animal But that is very different from what's about to happen here. At this point, God enables the donkey to speak, and she addresses Balaam. Remember, we're talking to Balaam, who's been summoned to come and place a curse on Israel because the local leaders are terrified of the size and growing strength of the Israelites. And on the road, Balaam's donkey lays down, he's beating it with his staff, and the donkey is given power by God to speak. She speaks to Balaam in a voice that he can understand. Let's be clear about that. She asks why he's beating her and points out that she's been a faithful donkey, his faithful donkey her whole life, and she's never treated him in such a way before. It's obvious the humor in this story, but let's treat it with the respect it deserves. This is a miracle. Animals don't talk. Not in the way that you and I understand, Um, but this is exactly what's happened here. Um, So, this was a miracle. Balaam answers his donkey. So, the story becomes a little more strange still. First, we have the donkey trying to avoid an angel with a sword waiting for Balaam. And then the donkey speaks to Balaam. Balaam answers and accuses her, his donkey, of making a fool of him. Well, it might be a just question to ask what looks more silly, the donkey talking to Balaam or Balaam talking back to it, but still, he feels he's been made a fool of. Um, and there he is arguing with his donkey. He is so angry, he actually affirms the donkey, he's like, I'm so angry at you, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. And then God opens Balaam's eyes so that he sees the angel with the sword. And as the usual response, when an angel appears, Balaam falls on his face, and the angel questions him about, you know, why he's beating the animal. And the angel even says, the donkey has saved your life, that he was waiting for him and would have killed him if the donkey had not moved to the side or laid down, or laid down. Balaam confesses his sin and promises to turn back if the angel wants him to. So we see now a, 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 a humbling of Balaam. Okay? This is somebody who was an important person. This is somebody who princes come in mass to request his presence. Okay? And Balaam, a, a powerful figure in his own right, has now been humbled to the point of arguing with a donkey and a road. He has been humbled. And now God is showing complete, his complete sovereignty over the situation. Balaam says, I'll go back if you don't want me to go. Um, but the angel says, um, no, you can continue with the princes, but speak only what the angel tells you. And that becomes an important part of uh, the, the rest of this story. As we get to Balaam's oracles, he, will, um, he only promises to speak what God directs him to, to the eventual frustration of the prince who, of, of the prince who sent for him. So, after this odd exchange on the side of the road and being humbled and being instructed by God. Because remember, we have a non-Israelite that God is communicating with. Several times now, God has spoken, um, communicated to Balaam. So, we move on. Balaam comes with Balak, who takes him up to a place where he can see part of the Israelites. Remember, we talked about how there's just a vast encampment of Israel, and he takes him up to a place where he can see a part of that camp. Um, and we move on to the section of Balaam's oracles. Quick question: Do you guys know what an oracle is? Yep. Someone. Someone. Um, I looked up a couple definitions. I'm just trying to. I thought that might be helpful. A priest or a priestess acting as a medium, through which advice or prophecy is sought for from the gods, but it can also, another meaning from it can be a response or message given by that oracle, okay? So Balaam's there. This is his business. He's been called to curse the people, but remember, he's been given special instruction by God. You say only what I tell you to say. So we have a section here, and I won't go through them in great detail. We're in Numbers 23, but we have four oracles um, of Balaam and Balak who has summoned him, um, You know, who has asked him to curse the Israelites. They go, they go through this cycle uh, three times, and then a fourth, sort of uh, different. Uh, three times, they build altars, they have animal sacrifices. Um, Balaam communicates, but he cannot curse the Israelites. As a matter of fact, he ends up blessing them. And again, I won't go through it in, in great detail. I've got the references in there if you want to look it up. But basically, instead of cursing them, he blesses them. And uh, you know, the second time, there, there's more sacrifices involved, there's seven altars, and there's bulls and there's rams, the second time. And and Balak, who has summoned Balaam, is, is increasingly frustrated by this It's just like, you know, this is what you, what you were brought here for, you know, you were brought here to, to bless these people. Um, but Balaam keeps affirming, I have to speak the words that the Lord has given to me. So, again, this is a unique situation. We have a non Israelite in direct communication by God who's been given words to speak by the living God. And he is, and after his uh, incident on the road, he is speaking God's words and he's blessing the Israelites. Um, and so, again, the second time, the third time. And then the fourth, the fourth time, or the fourth oracle, almost is a continuation of the third. Balaam gives a prophecy concerning the, the latter days of Israel, which is, which is a real change. Um, and I'm going to read part of this one to you because this one's very, very unique. Um, and it tells us some things about um, Balaam and also about Israel's future. I'm in Numbers 24, 15. And he took up his discourse discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eye uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities." Again, if you guys remember to Jeremy's sermon last week, he spoke about the oracle of, of Balaam, and I was really excited because it ties in so well. Um, why did God let Balaam, a non-Israelite, speak prophecy about the future of Israel? I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. Again, this is unusual. This is a bit unusual, so far in our story. Why? Showing grace to people that aren't part of the blessing. Yes. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Just what I said. <laughs> well. Showing grace and special love to people that are not part of the blessing from Abraham.
0: Well, I think it certainly is a reminder that God can use anyone. Um, I think it's a reminder that God is sovereign over all. Okay, He can use all peoples. And it's an interesting affirmation if you would just say, "Oh well, this is Israel. This is Israelites saying good things about Israelites, you know, and saying great things about their future." It's a little different. Remember why Balaam was brought here? He was brought here to curse them. So for him to, to to have this experience on the road and then be in um, communication with God and to be is a very different picture because um, Balaam has no. Predilection or loyalty toward Israel, Balaam was brought here to help get rid of them. But so for Balaam to be saying these things, for it's it certainly um, it's just showing that God is sovereign over all people, and God you know has that ability to use people and um, even the people that aren't part of Israel at this time. So basically, Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So. To say this has failed is a colossal understatement. Not only has no curse been levied against Israel, Balaam is just like, I can't do it. The only words I've been given to speak are blessings and some prophecy about their future. Um, And I had a little note in here, if you guys want to look it up, just uh, the reference about the star and the scepter, you can look that up. Those are themes that will come up again in the New Testament. So Balaam for the moment fades out of our story. Um, the Israelites, and uh, sorry, I'm not I'm not used to having these maps. Let's start stop here for just a second before we move on, because I know some of you guys have been asking for this. Um, I don't have a laser pointer, but I want to show you guys again. Remember where in the world we are, okay? We have Egypt, and remember up in northern. E- oh hey, oh look at you, Simeon. Thank you, Simeon. Which uh, which button do we have? Laser, the one that says laser. laser. One says laser. Oh. I should be able to figure that out. Okay. So uh, so we have Egypt and Goshen. Remember the northern region, okay, of Egypt. Okay. This is the Sinai Peninsula, where we'll see the, the wanderings of the Israelites occur. So remember, we're Abraham. We start up here in Canaan. Remember, we go down to Egypt, we settle in Egypt. We're slaves in Egypt. Okay. And then we have, <clears throat> remember we had the land of Midian over here? Moses and Land of Midian, okay. And then this is Sinai. And this, of course, is the promised land because remember we talked about how God had already laid out the boundaries for the promised land. There's no confusion here. They know exactly what we're talking about. We say the promised land. And can you advance that for me, one? And if you take just this area here and zoom in a little bit, so Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Mediterranean Sea, and if you can advance it, one, I have a, a more magnified view. Okay. This is the Sinai Peninsula here, okay? So, um, again, this is zoomed in. Saudi Arabia is down over here, very big. Egypt is over here. This is the smaller Sinai Peninsula. And here's where we leave. And remember I said that Mount Sinai traditionally was in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, although more recent studies indicate it could be more central up here. Either way, we leave, we're to the mountain, we're there for a couple years, okay, and then we're off. We go north because, remember, we're trying to get up here to Canaan. Remember, this is the, the promised land. We come this far. We make it to uh, Kadesh Barnea, which should be right here. And the spies are sent out, okay. And you guys remember from last week how that went. Um, so the spies enter the land. They look at it. They're like, it's a great land. Flows with milk and honey. But the people there dwell in large cities. There's giants there. Um, they give a bad report, and they are turned away back in the desert for further wandering. But we're drawing close to the end of that wandering time, okay? Remember we said it was a year for every day the spies spent in the, land, spent in the land? And we are coming up to this area, we're getting ready, we're getting close to entering the land now, okay? We're getting close to the end of Moses' time because remember, remember what happened to Moses? God told him he would not enter the land because of his disobedience when he struck the rock, okay? And again, these are all, you know, can't be dogmatic about these, but best guess. So we are journeying up through here because we're talking about the Moabites. Okay. And can you advance that one more, please? And I have a, uh, one more thing up here I'll show you guys. Can you guys see these okay? Is this what's still good? Okay. Thank you for Simeon and Jason for all getting these set up and one more here and then I'll get off the map. But. Uh, any questions about the map while we're waiting here? Anyone have any questions about? Because because this encompasses the biggest part of our you know the large larger part of our story that we've gone through so far. Um, yes, yes. Um, and and remember, you know we have the Amalek. You know we have um, people that dwell down here. Remember how earlier God has, has at times sort of steered Israel around powerful peoples. Well, they're brought up through here, and we have the Moabites, <clears throat> the Amorites. But basically, as we come from down here up east of the, uh, the Dead Sea, and the entering of the land will be the crossing of the Jordan River. The Jordan River um, <clears throat> originates, I believe, it's up in the, um, the Lebanon Mountains up here by the. Here in this area, it flows down. It flows through the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. So this is the Jordan River here, and uh, again, we are approaching it. We're dwelling in this land, in this area right here, and we'll, like I said, we talk about the Moabites, we talk about the Amorites, and and I just want you to have those names in your ears because the next part of our story will deal with that. Um, but yeah. We are, we are approaching the point where Israel will enter the promised land after many sins and a lot of wanderings, and uh, hopefully that helps a little bit just with the uh, <clears throat> visualization in your mind. So, the Israelites are living in this area right here. Hmm. Oh, anyway, they're close, they're close to the Dead Sea. And it was while they're living there, they begin to whore with the Moabite women. This is a theme we will see. We will see it repeated. We will see this, um, this temptation of Israel to corrupt themselves with um, women who are from a foreign people and worship foreign gods. Um, the Israelites begin worshiping other gods, including uh, the pagan god Baal, who uh, did some reading about that, it's apparently, as a fertility god. They have been commanded not to do this, but they do. We're now in um, Numbers 25. And of course, with idol worship follows God's wrath, because remember, God is not a God who shares. So um, God gives an order to Moses, and He has the judges in Israel, hang in the sun those who have served Baal. Another translation I looked up said um, impale, impale in the sun. There's a good, uh, a good image. Um, well, I just, this is a death sentence for the people who have done this, the people who have um, mixed customs and taken, um, with, with, with the local pagans, who have taken the pagan women um, and for this sin, God pronounces a severe judgment. And as Israel mourns, the the sentence is carried out, and to show you how brazen some of the sin had been, an Israelite named Zimri takes a Midianite woman, remember the Midianites? Takes a foreign woman, a pagan woman, into his chamber, because it just... it's staggering in the face of what we've seen you know, God reveal and God's punishments, that these things still go on. But we have also talked about how you know, our sinful nature, and it's, not, you know, it's a warning to us. It's not, a, it's not a, a time to just denigrate Israel. And this is a very public sin. And, and here we meet another character who's going to figure prominently in this story, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar. Does anyone remember who Eleazar is? Very good. One of Aaron's sons, Eleazar. So this is uh, Eleazar's son, Phineas. He sees this, and he is very moved by this. He's angry. He takes a spear in his hand. He enters the chamber and stabs through both Zimri and the woman. Little needs to be said about what was going on. How do you worship a, god of, a pagan god of fertility? But they are both killed. He kills them both and um, executes, you might say, the Lord's justice on them. And, and this is very interesting. God, this turns away God's wrath. I'm going to read you a section out of, uh, <clears throat> this is Numbers 25.10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. It actually, Phineas's action actually stops a plague that had broken out amongst the other Israelites. The plague kills a great number of them, 24,000, but... Phineas's actions in that moment actually stop it. So why did the action of this one man turn aside the wrath of God against all the people? Why did it stop this plague? Why, why did this move God so? So, bold, violent act. Um, I think, I think we have to take it, um, the text at its face value. And when he says, Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people, the people aren't really included in that. Um, now certainly the people are mourning because remember, a lot of them have been killed for worshiping Baal. So I just think it's, um, God's, I I just think it shows how, um, God rewards that passion for him, that faithfulness to him, okay? Now, certainly this was a, a, you know, a, a very public act, but he was zealous for the Lord and he wanted, you know, he wanted this um, to stop. So, I just think it's interesting you know, that the righteous action of one man had such a widespread you know, effect um, and that God noticed it. And then it turned aside his wrath. So, so Israel, for the first time, and again, th- this will also be, be a theme that pops up. It might seem, it might seem extreme. And, and we might as well just start talking about this right now. That there will be times when 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 the punishment that God meters out, or that the punishment that God dictates for the other people, the pagan people who are living in this part of the land, um, might seem extreme. Well, do we really have to drive them all out? Do we really, I mean, gosh, just kill them with a spear? I mean, that seems, seems, yeah, it seems extreme. But remember, that is the tone that many of the Israelites end up taking. Well, isn't it a little extreme to do all that? And the failure to do what God told them to do leads to further corruption and gross sin up until the point even child sacrifice. So it might seem extreme. It might seem that, wow, this was a lot, you know, but we just have to bear that in mind, that that when God says this, there's a reason for it. And when the people disobey, there are real consequences. And then the Lord directs Moses against the Midianites. At first, He's ordered to sort of uh, strike them down, and harass them because of what happened at Peor. Later, God orders Moses to send a thousand armed men from each of the tribes to execute the Lord's vengeance on them. The Midianites are defeated, plundered, and their cities burned. And again, we're we're just we might as well just address it head on. This is what God wants Israel to do. I'll read from Numbers 31, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, after you shall be gathered to your people. Moses' time is almost up, but God wants him to do this. Hey, wasn't he a priest the his yes, a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're talking about the same region, you know, the same, region, um, same people. But yes, generations before. Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets of the alarm, of the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain and skipping down. Balaam, kill Balaam with the sword. So that's interesting. I think that's a part of Balaam's story that not a lot of people... Balaam meets his end here. Balaam, who God used for a time to bless... The Israelites to prophesy about Israel's future so it could be recorded. Um, in this, in this um, war that the Lord directs against the Midianites, Balaam is killed. So just it's kind of an interesting little point. I thought um, but there's a problem. Moses is angry because he finds out the Israelites had taken captain of the Midianite women. It wasn't very long ago that these foreign women who worship other gods just caused a huge problem, Um, Baal worship. And here we are right back where we started, that, you know, well, we killed all the men, but we kept, kept a lot of the women. Moses orders many of the captives to be killed. Verse 15, Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. And again, we just had a problem with this influence, this pagan influence um, and Moses says, no, not this time. So they have they, they kill these captives. What are we to think of God's judgment and vengeance upon the Midianites? Wanda. The one thing that tells me when I think about this is one time Pastor Jeremy said, If you think you're more loving and more gracious than God, you better stop that thought right there. Yes. Yes. Right. I've been, I've been not yes. It's good to remember we are not as loving as God, and when it seems a little, it may seem to our eyes a little harsh, um, but a sovereign God is not, under no obligation. As Christians, we ought to know best. Best of anyone, what well, people deserve, what all people deserve, and that's God's judgment. Mercy when we are spared it. We're all sinners. Um, but I just I don't wanna I, I don't want to just skip over this because this is gonna pop up a few more times, and I don't want people to think, uh, you know, that 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 we can't talk about it or that it's somehow unrighteous or is ungodly for God to give these commands and expect this to be done. You have to picture him as protecting his children Israel. Remember that his ways are higher than our ways and that this was a specific command given at a specific time and a specific place. But I think part of this is Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yes, sometimes you just have to bow to God's sovereignty. And it is interesting you mentioned killing children. That's exactly what will end up happening to some of the Israelites because of the failure to drive out and reject the customs of people just like this. So, Greg.
1: Well, I was going to say that uh, God is showing a great deal of grace and love Mm -hmm. to the Israelites. Yes. Because having the Midianites or the Moabites or whomever... Mm -hmm. Around and infiltrating them is going to cause them a great deal of of uh, torment and destruction later on. And so, the if God would get rid of them or instruct them, I mean, they don't have the maybe the right, apart from God's direct uh, instruction, to just eliminate the, the people in their way. Uh, if God give if God instructs them to do that, then they're bound to do whatever God. As said, and so God is is trying to protect them yes. uh, because we've seen, as we've seen, they'll want to keep the Midianite women, or or do this, or, or keep the golden idols, or whatever it is, and that's going to end up bringing uh, difficulty to them, to say the least, even wrath by God onto them. So He's showing them a great deal of grace.
0: Yes, Israel does. I completely agree. Israel doesn't seem. The Israelites in mass don't seem to be able to resist the temptation. So think of it as God is removing that away from them. You know what I mean? It, it will just be gone. It won't be there. Um, so we see God's final judgment <clears throat> against the Midianites. Also, um, the, the, the loot that they've plundered has to be... Um, it has to pass through the fire. So like like the gold and the silver and the lead and that kind of stuff has to be burned and sort of melted before the Israelites can keep it. And the Israelites themselves, the soldiers, also have to purify themselves. So there's a whole section um, here. I won't get into it just because of lack of time, talking about how like how that purification is done, so that you know that what they are allowed to keep is distributed in certain ways. Um, God is active in all that. So we've now we're now on the plains of Moab by the Jordan River at Jericho. Right up here where I showed you, it, we're right next to the Jordan River. Just uh, north and slightly east of the Dead Sea, and um,
1: Jake. Yes. I also think
0: it shows how we're called to obey beyond our own understanding, and God calls us to obey completely, um, whether we really understand all aspects of it or not. That's true. That goes back to what you were talking about. Yes. That that we're not always called to understand, but we're certainly called to obey. I agree. It's um, a good point yes
1: yes we sometimes think that or or act as if uh humans inhabited the earth and was living their life and this unknown being suddenly appears on the horizon and starts having his way with us Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not really what what we have what we have is a god who has created everything that is it's all his all of it and that includes us and so, if he chooses to move some of us out of the way, or eliminate some of us, or take some of us off the map uh, in order to accomplish something else that he wants to accomplish, who could argue against that, really? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, a we, sovereign we, God. We don't that, get it. Yeah, sovereign gods God is ways. under
0: no obligation to his creatures. You know, he can do with them as he will. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's also important to uh, to think about. So we get some special instructions through the rest of Numbers for um, entering the promised land, including driving out the inhabitants, destroying the religious relics, and possessing the land. And again, God lays out the boundaries of the land. So again, there's no confusion about where this is supposed to be, and we're getting final instructions on what is to happen. But remember, um, we have to deal with the end of Moses too. Deuteronomy is, is, is an amazing book. It is a book that just due to constraints of time and scope of the class, we will not get into much. Deuteronomy means second law, it, and it retells um, parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers with, and also has um, a, a good portion of law in there as well. I read to you guys a little bit from Deuteronomy when I talked about how Moses at the end of his life you know, is is quite aware of the fact that the Israelites will not be able to keep this covenant as it has been made. He said, you're already breaking it while I'm alive. How much more when I'm dead? Um, but going through Deuteronomy, there's, just, there's one section that I would make you guys aware of, um, and that is Deuteronomy 28. It is a sort of an extended... Um, is an extended um, section that talks about the blessings for Israel if they follow through and obey God as they move forward and also um, what will happen if they disobey. And the, one, the verse I'd read to you is uh, Deuteronomy twenty-eight thirty-six is a warning against the Israelites, what will happen if they do not obey. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a, a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples, where the Lord will lead you away. Again, we just don't have time to go through all this, but that's a specific promise about being dispossessed of the land, being um, taken away and serving others. We will later in our study see that come to fruition, so I just wanted to highlight that here. Um, and, we're coming to, and again, we're skipping through Deuteronomy because... We just don't have time to get through it all. Um, Moses is writing down... Because remember, Moses, we believe, is the primary author for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He writes down all of the law and gives it to the priests. Remember back a few lessons when God commanded Moses to start writing this down? Okay, Moses has done that faithfully, and now all of this is codified. The law is codified. It's written down. We have an exact record of the, of the wanderings of the Exodus, it's all written down, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and every seven years at the Feast of Booths, it is to be read before all Israel. So we have the law now, the law we have, and it is to be, um, it it is something that is supposed to be, um, it's supposed to remind the people of it, and it's supposed to be read before them. This is Moses sort of making final preparations and we see Moses at the end of his life. This is in Deuteronomy 34. And um, he comes, he gets to view the land from a mountain, right? Maybe, A mountain, he gets to view the promised land. That's as close as he gets. He gets to see it. Um, and again, I just don't have time to get through all the, all the other stuff. But Moses gets to see it and he dies. He's 120 years old. Um, Interesting fact, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Moses was somehow by God preserved so that he was, you know, think about the struggles and the the challenges that he's faced. So he's not withered away, he's very, you know, strong 120 years old. And I'll read to you just a little bit from uh, the last book in Deuteronomy 34. Verse four, and the Lord said to him, he's speaking to Moses, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So we see the passing of Moses and um, God buried him. No one knows where, which is very an interesting fact. That's a claim that very few people can make. Um, and then in just I'm over a couple minutes here, but just one last thing I want to read to you, because basically we're going to we've gotten right to the cusp of the land, we've got our law, we've got our instructions from entering the land. Um, Moses has also announced that Joshua will be his successor. Okay, so we have everything we need to start conquering the land. We're going to cross the Jordan. That's where we're going to pick up um, next time. But just just a little, it um, was all this compiled together. If we read a little further in Deuteronomy 34, we have an interesting part. Here's a part of the Pentateuch that was not written by Moses. 34 Deuteronomy 34 verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since. In Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in all the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to his servants in all the land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses didn't write that, but it's an interesting historical perspective. It could have only been written by someone and who, lived, who had lived to see the days of the prophets come and go, because how else can you say there hasn't been any other prophet like that? You can only say that if you're looking back with a perspective historically long enough to say, we've had other prophets, but no one like Moses. So it's a, a sort of a special commentary on the man about his unique relationship with God. And um, he dies here, and we are ready to enter, at long last, into the Promised Land. And that's what we will pick up. Having finished the, um, the Pentateuch here, the first section of the Old Testament... Does anyone have any questions or thoughts about kind of where we... Remember, we started with Abraham. We called. We have this sort of a simple relationship where God tells Abraham what to do, and Abraham just does it. Um, and, and as we move along, you know, we have this covenant, you know, this covenant and how it develops down to Egypt, out of Egypt, Sinai, the wilderness. Does anyone have any thoughts as we kind of summarize this section here? I've had to fly through big bits of it, but I know, like... I just can't get through all of it, but I hope uh, some parts of it have been a good, good review. Any thoughts? We are actually, um, because we're getting ready to start a new section of the Old Testament, we will be taking next week off, okay, just with the holidays and everything. And also, I want to have plenty of time to do it justice as we get through this part, the Israel's wanderings, and there's going to be new characters and new narrative, um, and we'll pick it up in uh, Joshua In uh, two weeks. Any any last thoughts, comments, questions? Dean? I was just thinking about the size of Israel there, and I looked it up just
1: now, and I was noted that uh, New Jersey is about uh, 77,000 square miles. Mm -hmm.
0: That is interesting. Um, if you think about it, it's going to be, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people. And there's a second census that's given in numbers I just didn't have time to go through. There's two, two census in the book. But um, yeah, we're going to have a very large group of people um, that we're going to start this. They've already had one shot at it. They messed that up. This time, they're actually going to enter the land and uh, we'll get to see what happens next. So. That, that, that is fascinating, though. I mean, it's not that big. You saw how the map, we, we zoomed in, and then we zoomed in again. You know, there's the promised land. It's not a... Other thoughts? Thank you guys so much for hanging in there. I'm looking forward to getting to some new, uh, new parts and places less know. Can you advance that one more? Yeah. There you go. Thanks for hanging in there, guys.